Let's talk computer security, a new arms race, as Mark Zuckerberg called it. And there's a new course at Eastern Connecticut State University about that, data and computer security. And the guy that teaches it joins us this morning, Tim Hartley, Assistant Professor of Computer Science at Eastern Connecticut State University. Tim, thanks for coming in for this topic, which doesn't just apply to college students. It applies to all of us. First year for this course, and it's really popular, isn't it? Uh, yes. Uh when we schedule classes, they try to uh, give, give the stu students a good instructor-student ratio, so they ca cap the enrollment at 20, and it was very quickly it filled up at 20. And what we have is we have uh, students who are, for the most part, juniors and seniors, so so they're well established in the uh, in the program. But what's interesting is it's not just computer science students who are taking it. I've got students from other majors. It's not surprising that we have uh, math majors because there's a lot of mathematics and you know, potentially involved in security. But I think uh, I've got one, one student who's an art major. There might be a natural science major. Uh, so it, it's an area, as you said, that is, is not just for for the academic setting, but you can see that students who aren't even majoring in computer science have an interest in it. Do you also have some students in that class who themselves have been victims of cybersecurity, meaning they've had their emails hacked or other problems where they've downloaded a bad site and got malware, things like that? Yeah, un unfortunately, uh, it, it's so easy to do. In fact, even if you're aware of what some of the risks are, uh, there's always the potential that S something slips in, uh, you, you have a mental lapse for a moment, or uh, something new. Uh, it's kind of an evolving field. Uh, in the last couple of years, there's been some pretty big companies that have been violated. Uh, I think of Target. I think of the Yahoo email system. There's been other ones as well, but those are two that just come to mind. Yahoo went from an actual password to a security key. Did that solve the problem, or is, are we still at risk if we have a Yahoo account? Well, I, I think th there's always poten potential risk. Uh, first off, w w one of the things that, that you're addressing there, um, I, I bring up in the, in the class, uh, that when you're interacting with a computer system, there are a couple things to recognize. One of the things is you have to somehow identify yourself to the system. So, so we call that identification, where you have some kind of a user account. Based on the account that you have, that gives you certain privileges or authorizations. But the real key is when you say that I'm so-and-so, you're claiming a particular identity. You have to somehow prove that identity. So the third aspect of interacting with a computer system is authentication. And historically, and still uh, pretty, pretty much kind of dominating the field, is the use of passwords. W one of the problems uh, that I actually shared with the students with respect to passwords was historically, uh, you, you remember Sarah Palin, right? Uh, well, as she was run, running for vice president, there was a, a young man who was looking for some information about her, and he said, well, maybe I can get into her Yahoo account. And it turned out that See, we have to have what's called a security policy in place, and the security policy might say something like, you give me the password, you can get into the account. But the problem is these security policies are designed but not, uh, say, implemented properly. So what happened was there happens to be a backup. 
you, you probably have seen this yourself. There are security questions so that if you forget your password, they say, like, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your favorite color? And it turns out if you can answer those questions, you can then bypass the idea of getting in with the password. They allow you to change your password. Well, that's exactly what happened uh, to Sarah Palin's account. Uh, it, it, was, it was hacked in that manner. So pa passwords definitely are a potential vulnerability. Uh, but as it turned out, uh, I, I guess the the individual um, so, so was somewhat repentant about it, but it's kind of interesting. But as far as the strength uh, of an alternative mechanism, uh, that's going to be a much better way. In fact, ideally what you want to do is you want to have what they call multi-factor identification. Two means of authenticating. Password would be one, and another thing might be some kind of a security card or token. If you add that, it makes it stronger. But there doesn't seem to be any way that you're going to have 100% security. You sent me a list of the top 10 most important things you should know about computer security. And on that list includes this idea about making all this alphabet soup password stuff. But then farther down the list, it says, but don't write them down anywhere. And I'm going, wait a minute. You got the alphabet soup thing. I can't, with, with all the different accounts we all have now, I can't remember all that stuff. I got to write them down in some kind of code someplace or I'll never find them. So uh, what do you recommend on that? Well, the, the, the problem is uh, ex exactly the point you're raising, that what happens is to get a strong password, you're going to need a combination of as many different kinds of characters as possible. See, if you were to use just uppercase letters and say it's a one-character password, there are 26 possibilities. So if you increase it to uppercase and lowercase, now you have 52, and then it keeps going and going. And that's just for one character. You multiply that out, and the idea is even if you had a five-character password and it had a combination of all of these different things, uppercase, lowercase, digits, special characters. Computer programs now have the ability to break those passwords in just a matter of seconds. So the idea is you need a longer password. And as you're saying, uh, the alphabet soup analogy is probably a good way of describing it. If you end up with 10 character password, it seems pretty strong. But how are you going to remember it? Because it makes no sense. So one of the things that is suggested in places is to use some kind of a, a catchphrase. Uh, for example, uh, you, you might have, uh, like I see something here, beware of talk uh, over, over others. You might say, well, that, that's a phrase you're going to use. Take the first letter of e each word, and that becomes the basis of it. Way it becomes a little bit more of a mnemonic, and you, you have the ability to recall it. But again, what you also might want to do is when you have something like the letter A, well, why not insert the at sign? And now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're getting the strength you need and hopefully remembering it. You know, it's funny that on the sports travel that I have, there are some passwords for either Wi-Fi sites or for stat programs. And a lot of them, because we work in the media, they use the number three for the E of media. I just saw it at uh, Temple, I guess it was last week, M3DIA. No, it's, sort of like it's sort of like the E, only it's backwards, so that's how that works. Now, I know somebody who has basically had the same email password for the last 10 years. Here's the softball question in the morning. What do you say to her? <laughs> well, uh, de definitely that, that's a serious risk, okay? Uh, the, the idea is that 
if some it gets into another topic, uh, perhaps social engineering, uh, where if you understand something about this individual, you might be very likely uh, able to guess what that password is, especially if it hasn't changed for such an extended period of time, and that that's that that's another ser- serious risk. But when well, you I know the person. Okay. And I know what she does, but I'm not the problem here. The problem is the bad guys who maybe don't know much about her. Well, that's uh, that's another point that I bring up uh, uh, in class and, and that, that I've, uh, I'm prepared to talk about here, and that would be that if someone can find something out about you, then that gives them maybe they don't get a credit card number, but they know something about you, and that positions them well to be able to uh, exploit uh, say that social engineering capability of, find, of fi- finding out what your password is and so forth. Uh, how does that work? Well, what happens is if you log into say an unsecured website, and or it's not an unsecured website, but an unsecured uh, uh, say network, you go to public Wi-Fi. The first thing is well, so you're at Bradley, and they have public Wi-Fi at Bradley. Right. What do you recommend there? Well, and that could be not just computer, laptop tablet that could be a phone as well exactly uh what happens is you want to have some form of protecting the content of 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 what's ever on your device whatever that device is tablet phone computer and the idea is if the data is encrypted that that gives you a little bit added security because the encrypted uh would be like going back to that alphabet soup something in plain text you and i understand but when we encrypt it it becomes a bunch of apparent gibberish or, gar- or garbage. And if that's how your data would be stored, if someone were to gain access and get that, it's meaningless to them. All right, so here's my iPhone right here, and I'm going to be at Bradley tomorrow. I probably don't have that on my phone. Is this something readily accessible to all phone and or tablet or device users? P- potentially, uh, yeah, you can get things like, like, like f- f- firewalls, encryption capabilities. So, uh, some of it comes automatically, like if you've logged on to the, the web and used the web browser, uh, you may have noticed, uh, you'll put in like www something or other. What precedes the www would be HTTP, indicating hypertext protocol, but there's another one, HTTPS. And when that S is in play, what happens is you might see a little icon, like a padlock, uh, appearing up up in the top of the browser. That's kind of uh, security to you indicating that encryption is in play. So when you're transmitting messages, what happens is those messages would be encrypted in some way, sent across, and then come back. So that gives you some uh, security for what we call uh, d- data in, uh, in transit, data moving across the network. Uh, so that pretty much is automatic, provided uh, the way the web- websites are designed, they're, they're utilizing that feature. Um, so that that one one element to give you some security there. Tim, what's your background? How did you become a cybersecurity or computer science expert? Well, I had uh, taken a position years ago, IT, and kind of moved moved up through the ranks. And uh, what I found fascinating was getting into kind of a lower level with the software, working with what they call system software. And uh, that involved, it, like, installing things like operating systems, uh, maintaining those, up- upgrading them, and so forth. And that kind of got me fascinated uh, about th- the use of computers. Uh, as, as I did, uh, say, gra- graduate work, became a- able to teach at uh, colleges and universities, uh, I-, I then wanted to uh, 
perhaps share what I could understand about the technology with others. And that's kind of what motivated me in this particular course. Uh, what I had done was I have a, a, a business where I've done some consulting o over the years, and I've done training for a number of companies around the uh, United States and Canada. In fact, I even had a chance to go over, uh, go over to England and uh, do a class over there. Uh, but one of the classes that was in demand uh, by one of my clients and then also some government agencies for, for which I've uh, provided some services had to do with d data security. And they were interested primarily looking at it from the perspective of relational database that they worked with. And that's kind of my area of expertise, actually. Uh, the security is kind of, kind of a s secondary area. And what I did was I put together a course, presented it to a few folks. Uh, so these are IT professionals. Then the opportunity arose for me to teach uh, the class at, at Eastern, and I said, well, I've got to do it a little bit differently. These guys are not quite the same. You're, you're looking at folks who are undergraduates, haven't really seen the real world, uh, so also I've got to put kind of an academic slant on it. So I've been doing more and more research, and the more I understand about things, the more I realize there's a lot more for me to learn. Uh, so one of the things that kind of intrigues me about this is the fact that I'm learning more, but I'm able to share what I understand and what I learn uh, with, with these students. Uh, the idea is I want to prepare students for what lies ahead, both in their personal lives and also uh, prospective employment opportunities that might arise. Because I find that security is uh, perhaps not what it should be at a lot of organizations. And as a result, if these folks can kind of, uh, can kind of come out of the door uh, with their degree and with an education that says, hey, I know something about uh, data security and cybersecurity, uh, I think they might be ahead of the pack and uh, might, might get good, good employment prospects, plus, of course, taking care of their own lives. So that's kind of, kind of a little bit on the background of what, what got me into this. For people who run, let's just say, a laptop or a PC, and let's just say, hypothetically, they're running Windows 10 or maybe some of the dinosaurs, which I kind of wish I still had Windows 7 because that was the best. They kind of, in my opinion, they messed it up with Windows 10, but it's not what you call it. But for people that run your normal laptop or your normal PC, what types of security measures do you feel those devices should have to be safe? Is Windows Defender enough? Well, the it, it, it's hard to say. I think uh, what you'll find is... Uh, when, you're, when you're talking about security, what might be good today might not be good just down the road. In fact, uh, going back to a brief discussion we had, had about encryption, uh, there were some mathematicians that came up with this idea of uh, lo lo looking at encryption and public, uh, uh, public key encryption. I don't know if you've heard the term, but the idea is what we're looking at there is a way of sharing a key. And as they describe all of this, they, they were looking at various algorithms. And then uh, a small computer company, you may have heard of I, I, IBM, uh, they, uh, they were proposing uh, an encryption uh, algorithm. And then they got the federal government involved. And although the mathematicians were saying the key that they use for the encryption should be quite large, uh, 
what happened was the federal government said, no, it should be down to, down to this size. And, and they reduced the size of the key just, significantly. Just so we know what we're talking about, we say it should be large. Does that mean number of characters? Well, yeah, it's actually the number of bits within the key. Uh, what happens is two things go into the algorithm, right? It's not just your plain text or your actual data or your message that you're familiar with, uh, but a key goes in that kind of drives the processing of the algorithm as to how to transform that into this gibberish or these strange characters. The point is the algorithm can be known to anyone, but if they don't know the key, then they have no idea uh, what, what, what the process was that was actually taken. And looking at this, what they call the ciphertext, the encrypted text, they can't make any sense out of it. So if the key is large, what that means is when I went uh, and described earlier that, say, we had 26 letters of the alphabet, well, you could try the uppercase A. Well, that didn't work. Try the uppercase B. That didn't work. And by brute force, you try all possibilities. So if the key is very large in terms of, saying, being 128 or 256 bits, binary digits, then it's like an astronomical number uh, to kind of do, conduct a brute force attack. So what the government had proposed was let's reduce the size of this to, say, 56 bits or, or something uh, quite small. At the time, it was adequate. But the mathematician said, no, no, that, that's, that's not strong. And sure enough, that, various, uh, that, that exact algorithm uh, is still strong, but because it was built upon this short-length key, this small key, it is now broken. So the point is, it's kind of a moving target. What works today, there's no guarantee it's going to work five years from now six months from now, it, it could be broken. Because it's kind of an active area where people are, uh, I, I guess we would call these you know, the, the bad guys. The bad guys are out there, and they're actively investigating uh, how, how to uh, break these codes and so forth. So it's very difficult to say uh, that whatever you try is going to uh, survive for the long haul. Like you were talking about the person who has this password who's had it for an extended period. Uh, that's a couple letters, a couple numbers, and that's it. Yeah. Not, a, not the best way to do it. However, I do have a very good email question, which I'll bet is a question that maybe some of your students ask too. Is Apple security enough? Do Apple products protect the user? Well, I'm not that well-versed uh, in the different systems such as Apple, uh, but I can share stories where historically even Apple has made mistakes. Uh, there was something uh, that I shared with the students in the class about a specific situation where, uh, again, not being familiar with Apple, I, I can just relay the story. But I guess they have all these different apps, uh, say, uh, on an Apple phone. And uh, one of the things that you have to do is you have to provide some password to say who, 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 uh, who you are and, and then authenticate. So what happened was there was something, I guess, uh, find my phone? Is, is that an well, app? Well, I'll tell you what. I got my phone back two months ago because of that. Yeah, okay. that's a great, great app. Well, the, the story that I heard about this was that, uh, see, see when, you, when you're doing authentication, the idea is if someone's guessing and they say, well, my password, uh, let's say it's ABC. They say, oh, no, that's not right. So you say ABD, that's not right. Uh, ABF, that's not right. And you try again, it's, no, the phone's locked. What happens is you get only so many attempts. Well, Apple had neglected to make a call. That to, happens on to, bank websites and things, too. You right, do it right. three or four times and you're done. See, yeah. that's the way it should be. That should be part of the policy. But what happened was initially in an implementation of this Find My Phone app, uh, Apple had neglected to enforce that. So you make the third type, 
try, the fourth try, the hundredth try, the millionth try. You just keep going and going and going. And the point is that so, someone who is de- definitely focused on getting in, there's nothing to deter them. Uh, so, Have they fixed that? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, oh, I feel a lot better now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it's one of those things that uh, no matter what company you deal with, what software, there's bound to be vulnerabilities. And if you look at a particular version of an operating system, and I can guarantee that no matter what system you're working with, you're not working with version 1.0. What has happened is very often you're working with something where after the point uh, it's like a double-digit or triple-digit number because various patches or fixes have been applied. And also what happens is when you add new functionality, that also introduces potentially new vulnerabilities. So that's where you see uh, the operating systems evolve and these higher numbers for release numbers doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. It means that, well, maybe there have been new enhancements, but also new vulnerabilities, and then fixes to those vulnerabilities. So uh, it, it's almost as though uh, it, it, it seems that there's very, very little hope in getting something that's 100% secure. Tim, the IRS wants you to file electronically. How safe is that? You talk about cyber hacking and things like that. I would think the IRS is in the top five as far as areas where people try to hack into that system. Well, I've actually had some experience uh, doing professional training for uh, IT folks and uh, security folks and so forth with with the Internal Revenue Service. And I know that there are some things that they're very cautious about. Uh, I I taught uh, the course that I had mentioned earlier about the IT version of the uh, data security class to a bunch of folks, uh, database administrators, security administrators, and so forth for the Internal Revenue Service. They were very receptive to it, uh, and these these folks uh, discovered some things that they had not known about how, how security works with the software. But talking to application developers as well, people writing the code that works with the, the data that we entrust to the, to the Internal Revenue Service, uh, one of the things ideally you should do when you're testing something uh, is in, say, a production environment, you may have millions or billions of records. But in a test environment, you may only have hundreds or thousands of records. So whatever you test is not the same environment for with, uh, where the production software is deployed. So one of the concerns there is you should have a test environment that mirrors your production environment. That way you can say, well, I've, I've really validated my software. Well, you think about the data that they have entrusted to them in the Internal Revenue Service, and what you see is uh, if they were to give you the same data, then they're exposing this sensitive information to these people who are developers. So the IRS frowns upon that and prohibits that type of thing. So in one sense, it's good that they're protecting the data, that they recognize uh, the importance of that data. But in another sense, those vulnerabilities could creep in because the software has not been tested as thoroughly, perhaps, as it should be. So for the most part, I would feel pretty confident uh, with, the, with the services that they provide uh, because I know they take it very seriously. And, um, but again, there's always something that is, um, we fall back and say there's no 100% guarantee. If I get a ransomware attack, what should I do? Well, r- ransomware is is ca- ca- kind of funny. Uh, I guess, su- surprisingly, uh, some folks uh, who make recommendations, uh, I, I think I actually saw an article where, say, the FBI had said, just pay pay it. 
And it's like, well, that's, that's not very encouraging to me. Uh, one of the things is that if, if you're doing, uh, say, the IT or the maintaining of your data in a proper fashion, there should be backups of your data. And one of the things that uh, might, might happen would be there, there might be a way to kind of, kind of flush the system, start from scratch, and restore your, from your backup. Uh, the problem is it's, it's a painful experience and a very, uh, say, say, costly experience in the amount of time that you have to deal with. So um, I, I think in terms of paying it as a recommendation, I'm not 100% uh, confident that that's the way to do it because uh, obviously you're encouraging these folks. And it's like you see in these movies and television shows. You pay the ransom and they always say there's no guarantee you're going to get the hostage or the kidnapped victim back. Well, there's no guarantee necessarily that your uh, software will be freed or released. So uh, ra ransomware, uh, again, is something that it's a type of what they call malware, where you can have viruses, trojans, worms, uh, ransomware. It's one of those things that you should take efforts to try to avoid it, and that, that would be the, uh, the uh, say, say, the best practice ra rather than having to deal with it later on because it might be a difficult experience. Have you told the students in this first-year class yet about when you put the cell phone, I guess it was an iPhone, next to a laptop and what you discovered? I haven't, haven't had the chance to, uh, to discuss that, that particular point. But you will now. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is that um, what, what I saw demonstrated by one of the security companies was uh, how vulnerable your device is, whether that device is a computer, a phone, a tablet, whatever, uh, how vulnerable that device is from simply connecting to a network, not doing anything. So when you see uh, free public Wi-Fi, uh, the price sounds too, too good to be true, so you say it's very tempting, I'm going to get in, but if it's un an unsecured network, uh, what I saw demonstrated was uh, a person with a laptop who basically had the network, and sitting next to him was an individual with a smartphone. And all a person with a smartphone did was connect to the network. He did nothing else. And immediately the person on the, uh, the, the end who would be considered the, uh, the hacker or the intruder uh, was saying, oh, you, apparently you do bank with the ABC uh, company. He found that out just from being able to get into the device. And he said, oh, you're a fan of such and such a sports team. He saw some app uh, that was related to that particular sports team. And in a matter of ju just a, a, See, a moment. Here's my phone right here. Can you read that app right there, Tim? Uh, That's the Boston Red Sox. Okay. So if this were me, I'd be outed as being a Red Sox fan. It, it, we wouldn't even have to see the phone. Right? Yeah. yeah, most people already know that. You're right. right. But about a stranger, though, and right. sometimes the strangers are the ones you got to worry the most about. I'm not worried about my friends knowing I'm a Red Sox fan. They already right. know. Right. Yankee fans hate me. It's a perfect world. Right. <laughs> anyway, so is there a way to stop that from happening? Is there something on the phone or something on the laptop? And is it only laptop sensing phone apps or could it be the other way around? Could a phone find something that's on a nearby computer? 
uh, it's po- possible to b- b- basically look, look in any direction because w- w- once you're on uh, on the network, uh, like I have a small uh, net- network uh, in in my office where I've got uh, half a dozen devices on there, and like if you're using a Windows operating system and you're using something like say the File Explorer or uh, there, there are other tools as well, and what you do is you say, well, let me see what's out there, and you'll see, well, on my C drive, uh, here's a folder, and a D drive, there's a folder, but you'll also see, oh, here's some other computers. The other devices that are on the network have identified themselves to the network, and if they have designated that they're willing to share what's on there, not not protecting uh, or concealing their, their content, then not only do you see the presence of the device, but you may actually be able to access and see some of that data. So, for example, on w- w- Windows computers, uh, you do have some level of protection by saying, well, uh, I'm on a network, but I'm not going to share anything, which means you're you're not revealing or exposing anything there. Uh, So similar capabilities should be available on any kind of a device that's on a network. But if those things are all effectively disabled, uh, the idea is you're wide open and and vulnerable. Uh, And again, it's a two-way street. What advice do you have for people that are applying for credit cards, or what should we know about the process to apply for a credit card? Well, the inf- information uh, that's collected about you for, say, a credit card application or um, a- 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 anything like a bank account or whatever is sensitive in nature because it's looking, for example, about uh, your employment history and then maybe uh, what, what kind of assets you have and so forth, how long have you lived in a particular dwelling and so forth. So that kind of information by itself is confidential uh, or sensitive. and. Again, if we're applying online, then we are looking for some security that this information as it's being transmitted is being transmitted not in plain text but in an encrypted form. Well, that will get the information to to the uh, to, to the folks that need to evaluate it. But the question is, what do they do with that information after they've collected it? Uh, they, they say, well, this is an application, and then we'll will grant the credit card, so now we'll secure all information about the credit card, but what about the application? Or suppose you were denied the credit card. That's information that was submitted to apply for the credit card is sensitive in nature. What do they do with that? Uh, so recently I saw an article uh, in the Hartford Current about uh, a, a breach in that regard, that that kind of information, the application uh, for for a mortgage or something of that sort, that information was not secured. So the concern is, how well do these folks respect the information that they collect about you? Uh, so it's something that, in a, uh, in a sense, is outside of our control. And hopefully, uh, we will get some assurance from these folks that they are uh, they are protecting it and deeming it to be as valuable uh, as as we know it is to us. But uh, again. Uh, That's kind of a judgment call, I guess, when you submit the information. Uh, Hopefully, uh, there's some assurance. But uh, you talk about phishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, what it is and how we can watch for it to avoid getting caught in a trap. I don't know if you've ever received an email where it says, oh, this is from my friend Bob. But if you look carefully, it's not Bob's email address. On the top, it says Bob. So someone was masquerading as this individual. But what you'll see is it's some 
strange-looking email address. We had that, by the way, come to the radio station here, and it went to like everybody's email address of the radio station, and it's from a name we know. So let's say it's Joe Blow at Hotmail.com. Well, no, no, it's a sender name, so the name was Joe Blow. Mm -hmm. But you're right that the email address from the sender, it did include his email address, but there's a bunch of other gibberish in there. And I saw that, and I'm not going to open that attachment, but somebody here did, and their computer got infected, which is what this is all about. Uh, exactly. That, that's the idea. So when you're looking at it, someone is masquerading as someone else, and it's someone uh, per perhaps that, that you, you trust, and you say, oh, um, what's this person up to? So you, you open the email. Sometimes it actually it, was a business email. It, kind okay. of looked, it was actually, the, the attachment said invoice, so it looked like they were sending a bill, which we do on a daily basis right. here. And they, it was trying to infect a computer, and it, it did get one. I didn't open it because I saw, I recognized the email address and says that's not where that should be coming from. Right. Most people don't take the time uh, to, to, to look or perhaps don't know to look or, or know how to look at the a actual address. They just see a familiar name and they just make an assumption. Uh, but the idea is sometimes what you'll see is uh, they're, they're looking to get information from you, so it might not be quite as malicious uh, d directly as, as a virus coming, coming in uh, to the computer and infecting it. But what they're looking is to draw you into this particular link that's uh, in, say, an attachment or within the email and have you click on that. And then when you follow that, uh, that may open the door to other things, some kind of infectious uh, software uh, introduced to your computer, or maybe they're trying to uh, elicit funds from you, uh, say, well, we, we, uh, we, we need support for this program that we're dealing with, and we, we'd like you to send us some money. Uh, so that kind of what phishing could be. It, it could be involved with the idea of trying to persuade someone to follow a link to contribute some uh, funds or whatever to expose themselves in some way. And uh, it, it's not at all uncommon. Uh, I've seen cases where uh, at, at the colleges and universities where I've taught, uh, there are warnings from the IT folks saying, beware of this phishing attack. They, they recognize that, it, that it's been hitting uh, the faculty and the staff and, and students uh, at the institution. The other thing phishing can do is it can have you open a website that looks just exactly like the website you think you're going to, but it's not. And if you put information on that website, click on information like name, address, phone number, maybe even sensitive stuff like credit card stuff, it goes to another site, not to the site you think it's going to. Which brings me to another area, and do you think people allow online shopping facilities, let's say Amazon for example, to store their credit cards? I'm I'm spooked about that. Now, I don't buy that much stuff from Amazon, so it doesn't affect me much. I know there's people who make a living buying stuff off Amazon, which is why they you know, made $12 billion or whatever it was last year. But I don't let them save my credit card information. It's a little bit of a pain the next time I want to buy something because they're going to type all that stuff back in. But I know there's probably a vast majority of listeners right now who allow those online shopping sites, not just Amazon, to save that information for the next purchase. And I would think that's putting your credit card or personal data at risk. Uh, I, I, I agree because I've actually seen uh, stories about some of the breaches that have occurred where whenever you entrust your data to someone else, the question is how responsibly are, are they going to uh, re react or, or say, say pr protect or conceal that, that information. 
And there have been a number of stories over the years. In fact, one of the things that makes the, this course potentially easy to teach is I, I've got all the newspapers I, I can open up, and every day uh, I, I can find at least one article that talks about a security breach or hacking or something of that sort. So there's a wealth of liter literature available uh, to emphasize the point of wh why we need uh, to take this uh, seriously. What would you say to someone who needs to transmit some sensitive data, whether it's a password, whether it's a bank account number, you got to write to your trust lawyer who is not within arm's length. Is it safe to either email that or text it? That sounds risky to me. If you do a simple email or text, uh, one of the problems is, the question is, is the content uh, of, of, of the message uh, secure? Uh, is it, so, see what they have is they have the concept of what we call an eavesdropper, uh, which you're, you're familiar with the term, but from outside of technology. But what happens is, if we have two computers that are communicating, the message is being transmitted across what we call the, the wire, whether it's wireless or wire uh, or wired connection, they typically call it. Uh, it's on the wire. Uh, the idea is the message being transmitted, and that message is subject to being inter intercepted with someone listening in. And this is what we call a, a man in the middle attack. So someone intercepts that message, and if that message it was actually sent in plain text, then the idea is you've made it very easy for that eavesdropper. Uh, they can actually just see this thing. Uh, they're using some that might be called a packet sniffer. It's very easy to do this. There's software out there that actually intercepts the packets and then exposes to who's ever uh, uh, interested the content of the packet. But if the packet is sent such that the content is encrypted, then the idea is that the re recipient uh, will have to decrypt it, but the man in the middle won't be able to decrypt it. They, they lack that key that we talked about previously. Uh, so what they're getting is, is just apparently garbage. So if it's transmitted in a secure and encrypted fashion, uh, then you, 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 can, you can rest pretty safely. Uh, I, I think that it, it's, it's going to take quite a bit of time. The idea, once again, I said it wasn't 100% guarantee, but with these encryption algorithms, if we could make it such that the amount of time that they have to spend to, to kind of crack the code uh, it, it effectively is such that by the time they're done, that information's of no value, then we've succeeded. Is it any safer to give that information over the telephone? Because I'm thinking to myself, a wireless phone is out there for anybody that could hack into that as well. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I uh, said, uh, what was the, the movie? You remember the movie from back from the 60s, Failsafe? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the president had this red phone, which is a direct connection to the Kremlin or something. If you've got a connection like that, I think it's okay. But I don't think most people have such a direct line. So the idea is... Uh, over over con conventional phone lines, I, I, I think there there's a risk there, unless there, uh, the uh, message was somehow gar garbled, uh, uh, in a sense, encrypted. But uh, aside from that, uh, yeah, I, I think that you're, you're not you're not really going to get security there either. That was a powerful movie. Larry Hagman was in that. Uh, old yes. Jr. from Dallas. He was like the president's assistant or the translator or something like right, that. Right. And then uh, they, they actually had the Strategic Air Command pilot who was given a false command to go bomb Moscow, and they didn't want to do that. And they put his wife on the phone saying, oh, please, please don't, I love you, honey, come back, and that stuff. And then 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, kaboom. 
beep on the phone, and you know what just happened there. Uh, lastly, who is Sarah Tasneem, and what's her role in this course that you teach? Well, she's actually the, uh, the chair of the Department of Computer Science, and uh, she and I have chatted about this, but uh, also within the, the department as a whole, they've been looking for some time to, to get some kind of a data security course. And I think she perhaps was one of the drive, driving forces, uh, and when, when I chatted with her, uh, she kind of perked up uh, and said, well, th th this sounds good. She gave me a chance to do a special topics course uh, th this semester, and I said, well, I could do this, or I could do that, or I could do data security, and all of a sudden I got her attention. Uh, so uh, she's been very supportive, uh, r really encour encouraging the whole process. Well, hopefully we've made some people think twice about safe surfing and some other data issues that we all do on a day-to-day -day basis, but don't expose yourself. And our topic this morning has been data and computer security, which is the name of the new computer science course at Eastern Connecticut State University, taught by Professor Tim Hartley, Assistant Professor of Computer Science. Tim, great stuff. Thanks for coming in this morning. It was a pleasure.